Well, as you know, I love sports. I love sports very much, probably too much. But there are certain aspects of sports which I don't love. Um, for instance, every single time the Oilers lose. I hate that, which is why I have so much hate in me, because they keep losing. Um, but there are other aspects that I don't like about sports as well. For instance, I, I know that I'm a fan, a sports fan, but generally I find most sports fan behavior repulsive. I hate booing. Just something about booing. It doesn't work, first of all, and it's just mean, negative. Um, I hate the the culture of drunkenness around sports events. Um, drives me kind of crazy. There's a new thing that's started happening, and maybe it's not new, but maybe I've just started hearing it, where entire arenas chant, chant swear words at refs. And like those are supposed to be family places, and it, it drives me crazy. I hate when fans use attendance at a sporting event as an excuse to unload their deeply rooted bigotry and homophobia and racism. Some of the things that fans shout, Yelly, you could, you've probably heard a lot of this too at games. You like, it's just disgusting and and not okay for anybody to say about another person ever. But because it's another team and people feel that that it's okay. A couple of years ago, a fan in I think it was Boston. Uh, they were playing the Philadelphia Flyers as a preseason game, and, and a fan threw a banana on the ice when Wayne Simmons, who is African-American, was taking the shootout. So as an insinuation of something terribly racist. And that kind of behavior, I mean, sport has long been the vehicle through which racial barriers are broken down. Think of um, heroes like Jackie Robinson or Willie O'Ree in hockey. Um, but sport is also a vehicle almost just as often just as often a place where those fences of racism are, are propped up and, and reinforced. I also hate the violence inherent in sports, and I know how much of a hypocrite that makes me because I watch football and hockey, uh, which are incredibly violent sports. But within the rules, I love a good hit as much as anyone. But egregious violence, both on and off the playing field, is, is terrible. Um, every year you hear about some baseball or hockey fan who got jumped by rival fans and... Sometimes that even leads to death. I've been at Oilers games where beers have been tossed on other people. Um, when Angie and I and the girls were in California, we went to a, a Rams football game, and the section just below us, there was a fist fight happening, and security had to come and break it up. My patience for that stuff wears thin uh, as a sports fan. And then there's the riots. Um, this picture is Vancouver, um, but Vancouver is not the only guilty party. Sometimes it's when the home team is successful, as with Oilers fans on White Ave during the Cup run in 2006, um, or Vancouver during the Olympics. Other times it's when the home team is defeated, as with Oilers fans on White Ave during the Cup run of 2006, or Vancouver in 2010. The, the point is, there's often no reason for it other than wave after wave of young person fueled by alcohol and this pent-up sporty aggression and looking for an excuse to just tear society apart. And it's often not even sports fans who, who do the worst of the damage. But storefronts are damaged, garbage cans are lit on fire, police cans, cars are flipped, tear gas is dispersed, all under the banner of sport. And it's disgusting. So there's a lot to hate about sports. And I haven't even mentioned professional sports teams in Calgary and Vancouver yet. There's just a lot to hate. Uh, the question is, what is the source of all that ugliness? Where does that come from? Where, where does all that violence and anger and racism manifested often around sports, where does that come from? And since sports are essentially a manifestation of society's values, um, entertainment, 
ability, consumerism, celebrity, violence, and victory, those are all things our society celebrates and are all present in sport. Since sport is, is just a manifestation of society, I think it's fair to ask those same questions of society at large. Where does this behavior come from? What's going on with this? There are other facets of society that elicit similar responses. Um, economics, religion, politics, just to name a few. Um, if you were an African-American person in the 60s living in Detroit or in Jackson, Mississippi, and you were doing this, that I understand that. I don't condone it, but I understand it. Uh, Martin Luther King had a quote that, a riot is the language of the unheard. That is the only way they can express themselves when an entire society gives them no means to express themselves and they have no freedom to, to express their anger. And so they riot. That's not what this is. I don't know what this is. Because um, sports, st- it, it stands out from those other areas because it's so inconsequential. And I can say that even as a sports. Sports means nothing. It's just, it's just sports. Um, standing up against racism, that means something. But what makes an otherwise peaceful and civilized individual fill up with so much rage and jealousy and maliciousness that they explode at their neighbor just because their neighbor happens to cheer for a different group of millionaire game players? Where does that come from? I remember about a decade ago, Zach Ford was living in Calgary, and he had those little, you know, those little flags that of sports teams people put in their window, and he had an Oilers one. And several times he had it snapped off his car by people living in Calgary who just hate the Oilers. And I like that. That's a small act of vandalism, but it's still one stranger releasing their anger and bigotry at the expense of another stranger. Where does that come from? How does that happen? And more importantly, today. For us, what is the Christian's role in the midst of all that ugliness and all that chaos? Why does the world rage like it does? And how do we withstand the storm around us? What is our role in the midst of the chaos of rage that the world has? Well, we're going to read the final story of Paul in the city of Ephesus, Acts 19, 23 to 41. We're going to begin with the first six verses, and we'll see if we can't spot the church in the eye of the storm. Let's read 23 to 26. About this time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Remember, the way, the world's coolest name for those people who follow Jesus. Can we change our name from Clyde Christian Bible? No, okay, never mind. To the way of Clyde, that that would be awesome. Anyway, a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Pause there for now. So this, this is the fourth major story we have of Paul in Ephesus. And Luke concludes Paul's two-year stay in the city with an account of Demetrius and the silversmiths. Previously, the glory of the Holy Spirit within Paul was such that even his sweaty headband was healing people. He, could, he wasn't even there in person, and his sweaty headband was healing people. And through that was because of the faith of the giver and the receiver, not anything to do with the sweat or the headband. Um, but there was power in there, uh, power in the Holy Spirit. And so famous was that healing power of the Holy Spirit 
that when the seven sons of Sceva attempted to invoke the same name of Jesus without any actual faith in that name or belief in that name, the demon they attempted to exercise beat the living daylights out of them. So the name of Jesus was becoming very famous and was being associated with healing and salvation and power. All of this led to Paul becoming very famous in Ephesus, a city that was obsessed with, as we looked at last week, what was Ephesus obsessed with? Anybody remember? Magic. That's right. Ephesus was a city obsessed with magic and the occult. And so Paul became very famous because they thought it was magic. However, as we see here, Paul and his fellow brothers and sisters in the way of Jesus were not only becoming famous, they were actually now becoming infamous as well within certain circles. We begin to see the rage bubbling up, particularly through Demetrius and the Guild of Silversmiths. The Silversmiths, they had made a collective fortune based on the wonder that was found in Ephesus. Anybody remember what the wonder was? I'm testing you. You better know that every week I'm going to test you a little bit to make sure you're listening. So, what was the wonder that was in Ephesus? No, the library was in Alexandria in Egypt. You're so close. That was one of the seven wonders. It was a temple to Artemis. Oh man, the bosses are crushing it today. You guys all got to step up because they are winning it was the one, the seven wonders of the ancient world. The one that was in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. It was the pride of the entire province of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. It was four times larger than the Parthenon. You guys are familiar with the Parthenon, that big marble, I think it's marble build. No, it's not marble, stone. I don't know what. The big building in Greece, on the top of the hill, with the, the pillars really famous. Well, the temple to Artemis was four times larger than that. The, the Parthenon is 230 feet long by 100 feet wide by 50 feet tall. So it is not a small building. And the Temple of Artemis was four times bigger. It had 127 pillars, each 60 feet high, decorated by the finest sculptors of the age. It was an ancient architectural masterpiece, all dedicated to Artemis, a fertility and wilderness goddess who predates Greece itself. She was there before the Greek gods were known. Because it was so wondrously magnificent, Ephesus would receive visitors from far and wide to worship Artemis at her temple. And to do so, they would purchase these little silver pieces, almost like coins, and stamped on those coins were the image of Artemis herself. And these coins would be given, I don't know what they would do with them, but they would be given at the temple. And collecting a tidy profit on each silver image of Artemis were the silversmiths, of whom Demetrius is the primary spokesman. He may have been the president of the guild. And so the problem for the silversmiths wasn't that Paul and his troublemaking band of Jesus followers were speaking evil about Artemis, They weren't going around saying, hey, stop worshipping Artemis. She's not even real. They weren't doing that. The problem was that so many people were joining his way of thinking. And his way of thinking considered the worship of graven images to be detestable. Any graven image. And it was cutting into their profit margin. No doubt at some point somebody said, hey, they're all worshipping Jesus. Why don't we make these silver coins of Jesus? But the Christians didn't like that either. They didn't like any kind of, of graven image. And though Paul and his friends weren't going around speaking ill of Artemis, the consequence of their meddling dedication to the way was that beautiful Artemis was beginning to look pretty bad by extension. Every new convert away from the goddess that they made images of and towards the god who had made each of them in his image represented a blow to the glory of the Ephesian goddess. So they're making these little little images of the goddess And each time somebody moves away from that and towards the God who who crafted us in his image, the glory of Artemis is decreased a little bit. It also 
probably more significantly, probably more to the point, represented a blow to their financial bottom line. And that's probably what really got them angry. Demetrius, for one, was not going to stand idly by and let this happen any longer. And by the time he has finished blaming the Christians, as we'll see, he will have riled up thousands of people against Paul and his companions. So what started with a little financial issue becomes this huge uprising, this huge riot against the Christians. And so here are several answers to the question that I started with. Why does the world rage? Where does this rage come from? What is the source of it? Well, it rages when there is, I think, a threat to its dominant value system, which is what Christians do as well, and or when there is a threat to its economic stability, which is, sadly, also what many churches do. When the church's bottom line is at, is at risk, that's when the church rages, and it's sad when that happens. But here's where I need to pause and make something clear, and I'm, I'm trying to do that already. When I talk about the world, I essentially mean the nature of humankind as a collective force. That's what Jesus meant by the world, the evil that exists out there. But the world is made up of people. So when I say the world is evil, I'm essentially saying human nature is evil. People can be evil, are evil. So when saying the world rages when its belief system or financial income are jeopardized, I sound an awful lot like a Pharisee because I'm saying that's how people, other people are. They get really mad when you threaten their money and when you you threaten their values. I know it sounds terribly pharisaic and judgmental because it's condemning it's a condemning statement against actual people because that's what the world is. It's people, not some faceless entity. However, you know what else is made up of people? Not just the world. The church is also made up of people. And the church uh, often looks just as greedy and just as impetuous and just as jealous and just as unstable as the world around it. It's like if I said, the world is like Stampeders fans. And Stampeders fans, sports analogy, Stampeders fans are so obnoxious and they're so irritating without realizing that Eskimos fans are just as bad. They're just as arrogant. They're just as uh, aggressive and, and annoying. I, I hate listening to sermons that focus on how bad and corrupt the non-Christians are and how good and lovely and righteous the Christians are. And that's not what this is. That's not my intention. This is a sermon about people. And when I say people, I don't mean those people. I mean people, us as people, all people, whether they're people inside the church or people outside the church. This is about you and me. This is about human nature, including the humans who happen to have dedicated their lives to following Jesus as the Christ. And that's you and me. It is human nature to leap immediately to wrath and rage the minute that our belief system is questioned or the minute our comfort and pride and money are threatened. This is not a problem outside of the church only. There but for the grace of God go I, descending regularly into fits of jealousy, anger, and greed. I still do that. Somebody who should know better. There but for the grace of God would I do it all the time. We are supposed to read Demetrius and identify with him on some level because his response to the gospel is typical of every human who's ever walked the earth. Wait a second. This means less power for me? This means less less comfort and financial security for me, we got to do something about that. Sometimes we get over that, but as you know, and then probably experience, and maybe have even felt for yourself, that is not always, the positive response is not always the dominant one. And so two idols are at risk here. The glory of the idolatrous named Artemis and the glory of the idol named Mammon, who we talked a lot when we studied Luke, 
Mammon was the, the name of the god of wealth and power and selfish desire. And so with that, the Ephesian silversmiths take to the streets, chanting the name of their goddess, drawing attention to their cause. And let's read up to verse 34 to see where that rage takes them next. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there, which is a little bit of, of Luke's Greek humor. What are we even doing here? Who cares? Just shout. Um, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right. Fittingly, in a sermon about sports and rage, the next scene takes place in what is basically an arena. We begin to see the first seeds of persecution to the way in Ephesus. Two of Paul's Macedonian friends, Gaius and Aristarchus, are manhandled by the crowd and dragged into the theater that seats about 25,000 people. So roughly the same size as Roger's place. Um, and that's where town decisions were made. And they, they, they rushed them in here to, to get them condemned. And so as the scene escalates and things begin to look dangerous for the Christians, Paul is determined to become part of the solution. And he's going to speak up and fix it. However, since it is largely Paul whom the silversmiths blame for their misfortunes, Paul has to be held back by his friends to prevent a lynching. It reminds me of like a prize fighter in the ring and it, it, he wants to keep going at him and his trainer's holding him back. Just, you'll get him next time, Paulie. Just wait here. Um, just pouring the water in his mouth or whatever. But no, stay back. If you get in there, you will be killed. And if you die, that's a threat to, to the way in all of Asia Minor. So stay back here, Paul. Um, interestingly, it's not just the fellow Christians who are doing that. The rulers of the province of Asia were known as, uh, let me get this right, Asiarchs. Asiarchs, powerful men who had fortunately befriended Paul during his time in Ephesus. They're Paul's buddies, and they're powerful men. And they say to Paul as well, you don't want any part of that. Stay, please, we beg you, don't get involved. So it's not just Christians, it's also Gentiles who see the danger here. But God knows the game plan. God is in charge. And all the while, as the crowd continues to escalate, it grows so forcefully and so rapidly that many don't even know what they've gathered for, which is kind of like the rioters on White Ave in 2006. They, they just want to watch the world burn, and they'll shout whatever they need to in order to get blood. And one group that feared getting bloody and tangled up with the Christians, the Jews. Even though they want to see Paul crushed as much as any of these raging Gentiles do, they hate Paul too. Um, but they can see that they might take some of the heat along with Paul. After all, Paul was a Jew. This troublemaking Paul was a Jewish man, and so all the Jewish people are afraid they'll be lumped in with Paul as well. Adding to the tr trouble is that it's not like the, the Jews are big on worshiping Artemis either, which is the whole problem here. So they, they take Alexander and they push him to the front, and they try to get him to calm everybody down, but the whole crowd's riled up at this point, and they already hate Jewish people, and so they start shouting at the Jews as well. Um, they're like fans. The, the crowd, the Ephesian crowd, is like fans blinded by allegiance to their team. No matter how clear the cross-check is, when an oiler goes to the penalty box, I'm mad. I don't think it's right or fair. 
And that's what the Ephesians are like with Alexander the Jew. Even though he's not a Christian, not part of the problem, they don't care. They're just wrapping it all up together. They're just mad and going to express however they want. And so for the next two hours, the city of Ephesus pulsates with a unified shout of allegiance. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, it's at this point in the story where we finally get some sanity. Some sanity gets a foothold. A city clerk, someone who acts as a liaison between Rome and the Ephesians, the city clerk enters the scene. Let's read the last little bit of the story, verses 35 to 41. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. And... As is so often the case when the world rages, the only thing that can placate them is the threat of violence done to them in return. The town clerk made it clear that this mob is not only senseless, but dangerous, because if Rome found out they were gathered in an unruly manner, the whole city would be punished for inciting a riot. The penalties would be severe. I think that that is pretty good evidence for how feeble their actual devotion to Artemis is. They give up supporting her the instant their lives are actually at stake. Paul is willing to die for what he believes. He's shown that again and again and again. Paul and the Christians are willing to die for what they believe. The silversmiths, they're not even willing to get extra taxes for what they believe. It's all about the bottom line. Moreover, the clerk makes it clear that Artemis' glory isn't being threatened in any way. She's so widely beloved and venerated throughout not only Ephesus, but all the colonized world at the time. There was 33 places in the Roman world where you could go and worship Artemis. Not just Ephesus. Tons of places. So her fame is not really at stake here. Artemis, she was gloriously famous all over the empire. And as the clerk said, the image of the great goddess wasn't even made by human hands. It fell out of heaven itself. Which I have my doubts about. But that's what they believed. In other words, the divine power of Artemis to them was undeniable and unassailable. So don't worry about this ragtag group of what, what is Paul? He's this short, balding tent maker. You're worried about him compared to Artem, the great Artemis? Just, just because he worships some backwood Nazarene carpenter named Jesus, you're worried about what's going to happen to Artemis? Don't worry. Artemis is safe. It, everything will be okay. Um, and so the crowd disperses, which is a tremendous victory for the local Christians in Ephesus, very much like in the last chapter in Corinth, Gallio's decision. But here's the thing. I've been... I've been to several Oilers games since they opened Rogers Place, and I've been to Rogers Place a couple other times as well. And to get there, I park at the Clareview Station in northern Edmonton and take the LRT down. And as you ride the LRT down, you ride right past Rexall Place, former home of the Oilers. It was in Rexall Place that most of the glorious moments in Oilers history happened, but now it sits as an empty, unused shell of its former self, a relic of a former time, thought of only as people are on their way to a truly gloriously beautiful place, the new home of sports fanaticism downtown in Edmonton. We only think of Rexall when we're on our way to get to Rogers Place. 
This is similar to what happened in Ephesus and in all of Asia Minor after Paul came through. The Temple of Artemis, once the most glorious place of worship and fame and glory in all of Asia Minor, is now a relic of the past. We, it, it burned to the ground. We don't even, we know where it was. We don't have any idea even what it looked like. So as great as it was, one of the seven wonders of the world, it's forgotten. And there's no, you can't find anybody, even in Asia Minor today, Turkey, you can't find anybody who actually worships Artemis. Artemis and the Temple to Artemis is like Rexall Place. It's a forgotten relic. There was glory there once, but the glory's moved on. For us Oilers fans, hopefully the glory moves on. Um, there's a new place of worship in town. And though its location in the hearts of men and women is far more humble than the Great Temple, because that's where the Holy Spirit is now. There's no one place you go. If you walk up to a human who loves Jesus, you are walking up to the Holy Spirit. And that may be more humble than the Great Temple, but the beauty and power and renown of the Holy Spirit cannot be surpassed by any making of human hands. That's what Stephen's sermon was before he died, way back in Acts, what is it, 7 and 8. Though Artemis' fans cheered for two hours straight on the streets of Ephesus, which is pretty impressive. Two hours of just saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I've been, you know, post-game at an Oilers game where everybody's out in the, let's go Oilers, and the guy's banging on his, that's not two hours worth. Um, But as impressive as that is, Revelation tells us that the voices echoing the praise of Jesus, the Lamb of God, up and down the radiant streets of the recreated new Jerusalem won't go on for two hours. They'll go on for eternity, for time everlasting. Because that is how much more surpassing the glory and greatness of our God is compared to the the man-made glory and greatness of anything else. This, I think, highlights the place of faithful Christians amidst the rage of the world. Other belief systems contain elements of peace. They contain elements of being kind to your neighbor, um, of enduring hard times, of awaiting future glory. Other belief systems sow goodness and truth into the world around them. That is not exclusively Christian, those things. However, No other belief system asks you to worship a God who shouldered the rage of the world, literally took it on his back and walked it to Calvary, in order to demonstrate the emptiness of the world's rage and to present a way, and in fact, as it would say in Acts, the way that is gloriously opposed to such demonstrations of selfish, judgmental wrath. Only our belief system has a God who entered the mess and the rage and the chaos, took it on himself, And says to his followers, you will experience this too, but it's okay. Take heart. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the rage and the chaos and the misery and the suffering and the pain. I've conquered it. I took it on my back and I've defeated it. Every human on earth is worried first and foremost about themselves. But our culture only awakens in rage when their values are challenged. And what does our culture value more than profit and pride and power? Nothing. That... Those are the foundations upon which Western society is built. What are the things that the most powerful man in the Western world, the President of the United States, chooses to fight for? Only that which will perpetuate the power of himself and other wealthy white males like him. And somehow, the Church of Jesus Christ has become entangled in that rage of Trump and others like him. Rage against women, against black people, against immigrants, against other religions, against threats to personal rights. One of the best quotes I ever read on Twitter is, to the privileged, equality looks like oppression. 
I'll say that again. To the privileged, and that's me and you, to the privileged, equality looks like oppression. And so you got white males rising up against African-American people, rising up against women, rising up against immigrants. Why? Because those people are a plane of rights below them. And as they strive to be equal to us who are white, rich, privileged men, that feels like an affront to us. It feels like an attack. And so men rage against those things. And if anything, I think the Trump government has enabled that. But when I read Jesus and I read Acts and I read the letters of Paul and others, I don't see that same kind of rage. In fact, I don't see rage at all. Not that there's anything wrong with righteous rage. The church should get angry about certain things. When we hear about some of the people Aislinn works with and some of the the crap that they are forced to deal with, that should make us upset. Injustice should cause us discomfort and should cause us to act. But rage is different. Rage is anger expressed in violence. Um, I don't see rage in the New Testament at all. I hear Paul saying repeatedly, as he does at the end of the book of Titus, this is, sorry if that's hard to read, but this is the end of the book of Titus. He says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and this is to Roman kings, like people who hate you and will persecute you and try to kill you, be obedient to them, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. Peaceable, considerate, obedient. Those are opposing words to rage. He goes on, At one time, you, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That, that's, I think he's saying that's what the world looks like. Envious, greedy, hateful. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Christians are called to be people of peace. Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're called to be peaceful citizens in the nation that we live in. We're called to be peaceful neighbors. We're called to be peaceful to each other, which is often the hardest part. Peaceful with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Once we were marked by the behavior of the world, as Paul says in, in or verse 3 here, once we were like Demetrius and his silversmiths, enslaved by passions and pleasures, enslaved by profit and power and pride, once we were like that, we live lives marked by divisiveness and judgmental anger. But now the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we are reborn and renewed. We are a new way to be human, which is one of my favorite Christian albums of all time. We are fans of a new team. And what marks us as fans of this new team is the setting aside of rage and the willingness to accept the, the rage of the world that doesn't understand us and doesn't understand our devotion to a servant king who died for us and doesn't understand the way that we are called to reject the corrupted things that the world worships, namely Mammon, the enticing god of wealth and pleasure. The world doesn't understand anything about us because we are totally contrary to how the world lives, what, what the world values, what the world... Um, promotes. We are so very different that they don't understand us, and so we can expect them to rage against us, even as all we're doing is good, or trying to do is good. But our religion is not one of rage and violence. Here's what the book of James says. Angie and I read this. Um, the speaker at camp talked about this yesterday, and it's, it fits beautifully. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In other words, 
do everything you can to push rage as far away from you as you can. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, not to rage against the wrong of the world, but to sow goodness back into the world, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so I ask with seriousness, does the world see this kind of religion in us as a church, as the church of the West, or us as this little church here in Clyde? Does the world see this kind of religion in us? Do they see care for widows and orphans? Or do they see the Church of the West supporting a man who creates widows and orphans through domestic and foreign policy? A man whose tongue is vile, judgmental, and anything but peaceful and righteous. How did the church get so associated with that behavior? How do we allow that? And I'm not saying you need to be supportive of the other side of the spectrum. I just, just this particular political climate in the most powerful nation in the Western world, how did the church get so wrapped up in the vileness of that? I don't understand. It grieves me to think of the damage to the gospel done by evangelicals hitching their wagon to politics of division rather than compassion and peace. Enough about that. Enough about American politics. I want to commend Aislinn and Jason as a great examples of people who are giving their lives to what James is saying here. Caring for the vulnerable. Caring for postmodern orphans. They may have parents. I'm guessing most of your kids have parents of some kind. But they're orphaned by some aspect of society that doesn't value them like they should be valued. It would be easy to fight many of the lifestyles that you see every day. To rage against cell phone use as I do every day that I'm in junior high. (laughs) Rage against it. Anyway, it'd be easy to rage against some of the bad decisions that you see every day in your center. But instead, as people transformed by the Holy Spirit, you and your team are devoted to the kindness and patience and compassion described here in the book of James. That is true religion. It's inspiring to me and to all of us. It's not just our guests. I know that each one of you does this in some way with a beautiful heart that loves Jesus very much, that is filled up with the Holy Spirit, that that chooses to sow goodness rather than divisiveness and judgment and rage. We, the church, as devoted followers of the way of Jesus, are more than just sports fans when it comes to the kingdom. We're not just fans. And it's more than just a game that we are participating in. It is life as life is intended to be. In fact, none of the world's rage should be coming from us, but the world's rage should be directed at us. And I say should be. Not that it's a good thing, but if we know what the world is like, what the kingdom is like, we should expect the world to rage against the kingdom of God. Why? Because if we are faithfully obedient to our call to selflessness, to loving, uh, to the kind of religion that James talks about, taking care of the oppressed and marginalized, if we are faithful to our call to that kind of religion, then the Demetriuses of the world will feel threatened and will lash out in rage. And like the Lord we serve, we will courageously endure that rage to demonstrate back to the world just how loving our God is, just how loving we can be. So loving, in fact, that in our wake, demons are cast out, the marginalized find a home, and both the spiritually and physically blind see the light. We don't value what the world values. We don't fight like the world fights. 
We don't cheer for the same things that the world cheers for. We have a light to offer humanity. We have to make sure that we don't obscure that light by acting like a bad fan of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to us um, to fill us with goodness and with light, to take away, as you say in your word, to take away um, all that, that marked our past lives, lives of maliciousness and slander and envy and hatred. Holy Spirit, thank you that you stripped that away from us. And I pray you'd continue to shape us into peacemakers, into people of compassion who show the true religion of caring for people who need caring for. Each one of us is incredibly privileged, Father, and we know that. And so I pray that you would fuel us um, to use that privilege to, to benefit people who aren't yet in your kingdom. I pray that we as a church and we as the church on a greater scale would double down in our commitment to goodness, to compassion, to acceptance that leads to discipleship, that leads to transformation in people's lives. Father, thank you for how you do that already in our church through these great people. Um, thank you for how you're doing that in the lives and work of our guests, Aislinn and Jason. Um, we celebrate you at work in us. You are greater than any image made by humans. You, you deserve all the glory and praise. And I pray that we would put aside our, our rage, put aside anything that's broken in us so that you would be glorified. We pray this in your name, Jesus, your powerful name. Amen. So let's bless you. May you be blessed, Yella. That was a prominent sneeze.